Our Bible reading is from John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 19 to 33. John chapter 12, verses 19 to 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. That would be the Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. One of the things that I'm guessing most of you have noticed in, oh, the last decade or so is that there seems to be a growing tendency toward a self-focus or uh, uh, a a self-centered way of looking at things. Uh, Many people will blame things like social media where people will uh, tweet or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat uh, pictures of whatever they're doing, of the food they're eating, of all the other things that are part of their life as if uh, that's what everyone in the world wants to see. 
Others will look and say it's because of our affluent society, because we have so much. Uh, people have, have this time to focus on their self, and they're much less interested on what happens collectively. But I, I think many of us would agree that this self-centeredness, this self-focus is something that, that is growing. People are worried about what they get out of things. They are concerned about whether people refer to them the way they want them to refer, want them to, refer to them. And the list goes on and on. But I think our scripture reading today has something to say to that sort of attitude and to call to us as those who trust in Jesus to look to living a different way. The setting is one that you're probably familiar with. It is right after what we call Jesus' triumphal entry. He just made that very public entrance into Jerusalem where the people were waving the palm branches in the air before him and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You you know it. In in a few weeks, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday and, and, and we'll all be reminded of that. The people rejoiced, but not everyone. No, there's a division here. And I started uh, with verse 19 to sort of give you a context, because we find there the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, who saw Jesus as a threat to their position, who saw him as somebody who was uh, claiming things about himself, that he was the son of God, that uh, they would consider to be... Uh, something worthy of a death sentence, they, they looked and said, see, this is getting us nowhere. They are trying to oppose Jesus, but it's not having any effect. Look how the whole world has gone after him. These Pharisees who'd long opposed Jesus, who had tried in many ways to work against Jesus' popularity with the people, saw the people praising him and honoring him as he came into Jerusalem, and they, they looked and said, all we've done, it's for nothing. The more we try to stop the people from going after them, the more the people go after him. The whole world, they said, has gone after him. Little did they know how truly they spoke. For them, that was just hyperbole. All the Jewish people, they're all going after him. Oh, the whole world. And then we read this. Now there were some Greeks. Well, this isn't just the Jewish people. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. It was not just the Jews who were interested in Jesus. Here we find that the Greeks were as well. Now, these weren't just any Greeks. These were probably what they would call God-fearers. They were people who were Greek, but had looked at the Jewish religion, and they looked and believed in the Lord and and they became people who feared the Lord and they would go to celebrate the feast. Maybe they had even gone as far as to convert all the way to the Jewish faith and, and, and be circumcised and all the rest. But either way, they were still Gentiles and they were unable to go into the temple. They could only go into the court of the Gentiles. And I'm guessing that is at least partly why they wanted to see Jesus because, well, John doesn't recount the event here. 
We know from the other gospel accounts that one of the things that happened when Jesus came in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem is he cleansed the temple. And it wasn't the inner courts he cleansed, it was the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, the place where if you were a Gentile believer, you could go and worship. And Jesus, when he did that, said, you've made this place a house of trade and it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the people. In other words, these Greeks who believed in God looked and said, there's something about this Jesus. We want to know more about him. We want, to, we want to meet him, but how are we going to? Now, it's not clear why they asked Philip. We, we, we have sort of a hint because he was from Bethsaida. And odds are, because that was a, a rather cosmopolitan place, he maybe dressed a little bit more cosmopolitan, a little bit more Greek in his robes. Who knows? But they knew he was one of Jesus' followers. Uh, they did not know that Philip already had a history of introducing people to Jesus, because Philip is the one who went to Nathaniel, another disciple, and said, you need to meet this guy, because I think he's the Messiah. And remember Nathaniel's response? What good comes out of, Galilee, or out of Nazareth? Philip had that background. But Philip apparently wasn't sure about things. Rather than going to Jesus, he went to Andrew, yet another one who had a history of introducing people to Jesus. He's the one who told Peter about Jesus. But Andrew has no hesitations about that. He and Philip both go and talk to Jesus and say, there's Greeks who want to talk to you. What's interesting, though, is Jesus' response. Because he doesn't directly address the question of the Greeks, of whether or not uh, they can talk to him. In fact, we don't hear about the Greeks again, do we? A whole bunch of people have spilled a whole bunch of ink trying to explain what's going on here. My guess is the Greeks saw Jesus, but... What is important, what John was, was inspired by the Spirit to point out, and what Jesus wanted people who follow him to see, is why this is significant. Because this coming of the Greeks who said, Sir, we want to see Jesus signaled, was an important event in the history of of the saving work of God. Because upon hearing these words about the Greeks who wanted to see them, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I don't know about you, but that seems like a strange response to me. It's a strange response until you read through what comes before this in the gospel account given through John. Because if you start in chapter 1 and start reading, you'll get to chapter 2, and you'll find a mention of the hour. There, it was when the wedding ran out of wine, and uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says, do something about this. And his response is this, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then you read a little further, and you get to chapter 7. And there you read this. So they uh, were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And you read a little further, and you get to chapter 8, and then 
you read this. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In all these cases, we find the hour. Jesus' hour had not yet come. But now, with the request of those Greeks, that had all changed. Jesus now says, the hour has at last come. And that change, the coming of that hour, is signaled by the fact that Gentiles came and said to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. The hour had come. The hour of his glorification. Well, what is that all about? If you look at those three references I gave earlier about when his hour had not yet come, the first one is sort of ambiguous. You might look and say, well, it's a wedding. And and if you look and dig into it, you go, well, yeah, that's probably something about his hour of, of glorification and power. Uh, but the other two are, are not nearly as positive. Both refer to him being arrested, taken into custody. That's not the sort of thing that we look at and say, well, that's an hour of glorification. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be rather ashamed if uh, I was sitting here going, the hour has come, uh, and the police come and walk in and uh, arrest me for some reason. Uh, that, that is not a glorification sort of thing. Later, Jesus describes it in this very passage as being lifted up. Another sort of ambiguous word. It's a a word that can mean exalted, that is, lifted up to a high position, uh, or just simply physically lifted up. And uh, with that, we find that he used those words to show that this was how he was going to die. So this glorification is not something that we look at and immediately go, yeah, that's really glorious. That's, that's really wonderful. That's the sort of thing that we would expect. No, the glorification of the Son of Man, the hour that had come, was one that signaled that his death was coming. In fact, Jesus goes on to point that out, doesn't he? He says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This shows how the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be glorified. It is a glory that comes in a similar manner to this, a seed, a grain of wheat that is planted in the ground until that grain dies, until it disappears, there's never going to be a new plant. But when it dies, a new plant comes. And from that plant, much fruit, much wheat, much much seed comes. It, It bears fruit. Jesus' point is this, unless he, like that grain of wheat, dies, the glory of what he will bring, that, that great harvest, that new life that he will give to people will not come. His glorification will not come through 
doing something pleasant. It will not come through people uh, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and putting him on the throne of Israel. No, it will come through him doing what the Father sent him to do by being obedient and going through something horrible, through his death, through his being lifted up on a cross with nails in his hands and feet, with his back, which was ripped to pieces by a whip against rough wood, and then hanging there, being mocked by the people. Now, his glorification was not something easy. That's why Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. This was not an easy thing for Jesus. Sometimes we, we have this picture, and, and then we get to Gethsemane, and we, we realize that it's wrong, that, that Jesus somehow had an easy time of it going to the cross. It wasn't easy. It was something he had to fight to do. It was something that he was tempted to say no to. And here he says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And then he says, no. No, don't save me from this hour, for it is this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, show how great you are. This is just like Gethsemane, isn't it? May this cup pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. And this is the other reason, this is the hour of his glorification. It's because in what he will do, he shows the Father as glorious, as wonderful, as amazing. It is an action that brings glory to God the Father as he and the Son, Jesus Christ, bring people who are in rebellion against him, people who care nothing about God, to new life out of the living death they are in because of the rebellion against God. It is in him being lifted up that he will draw people to himself. And here, when the news of these Greeks who wanted to see him came to Jesus, Jesus knew the time of his death had arrived, that soon he would be arrested by the religious officials. And although he was shown to be innocent... And even Pilate, when he judged him, judged him as innocent, he would be crucified, he would be put to death. Yet he knew that his death would not be one that was just a tragedy. No, his death would be that of a seed buried in the ground, and that seed that would be destroyed would bring life. It would bring fruit. It would bring a great harvest. It would open the way for you and for me as rebellious human beings to come to God. 
Not under the judgment for the wrongs of the sins and the disobediences and the rebellions we've had against God. Not under the judgment for the ways that we we so often go through life and say, God, you're not as important to me as the opinion of my co-workers who want me to do this thing that I know is wrong. Your, your, your glory and obedience to you isn't as important as, to me as, as, as this fleeting pleasure, this, this little brief moment of joy of doing something that is wrong. But instead coming to God as people who are cleaned, who are forgiven, who are made from rebels into children of God because of Jesus' death. The hour had come. The hour of Jesus' glorification. The glorification in his suffering and death in the place of his people, which continued in his glorification of his rising from the dead, showing he defeated death, that his sacrifice was accepted, and his ascension into heaven, where he reigns at the right hand of God the Father until he comes again when that glorification will be visible to everyone, when he brings consummation to all that he has achieved. That hour had come. Because in all that darkness, in all that pain, in all that sorrow, in all that humiliation of the cross, the Son of Man is glorified as Savior of all humanity, and with him the God the Father is glorified as well, showing his love in sending his Son to save you. Yet there is more here as well. The the glorious part of this, as many of you I am sure know, is what I have just talked about. You know, at least I I hope most of you know the wonder, the the amazing love of Jesus. I mean, we just sang sang it, didn't we? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Yet with this, I want you to notice something. Jesus goes further in his response and he applies what he would and eventually did do to those who trust him and how you are to live. Because he didn't just talk about that grain of wheat in terms of himself. Listen again, I'm going to read all of it. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Did you catch those words? Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. In these words, Jesus is saying something to you who trust him, 
to you who follow him. He says, this is the pattern I laid down. Just as a seed dies to produce fruit, anyone who loves me, anyone who follows me, will go that same way. Basically, what this is saying to you is, where are your priorities? There's two options given. He says, you can love your life. You can love your life and you can lose it. Or you can hate your life and keep it for eternity. Now, that seems like a strange thing to say to many people. In fact, it seems strange to me just as I say it now. But I want you to realize that there's a qualifier on that statement about if one hates his life. Because if I look at it and say, if I hate my life, why would I want to keep it forever? I mean, we... I, I've heard people say this many times. Who wants to live forever? And what they're saying is, who wants to live a life like we have here? Forever. Like, who wants to live a life where uh, you, you get up in the morning, and, and you go to work, and you work really hard, even though uh, as you get older, your joints hurt, and you're tired, and you go home, and you, you would love to do things and, uh, with your family, but you're, you're tired. You just want to sit back in that recliner and, you know, recuperate. But you push yourself because there's chores to do around the house. And you want to spend time with your wife or your kids. And you go to bed, and you wake up in the morning to do the whole thing again with new aches, new pains. And then you get sick. And you look and say, I'd love to stay home from work, but I can't because I have bills to pay. So you keep going, doing it. You keep pushing. You keep going. And then, then you get a really bad thing happening and you're in constant pain. Who wants to live forever? And so people say, well, if I hate my life, why would I want it for eternity? But Jesus adds a qualifier here. He says, it's not just hating your life. He says it's hating your life in this world. That phrase is important. That phrase is really important because in the Gospel of John, and for that matter, very frequently in the New Testament, the word world does not just talk about this world as such a big place with so many people in it. I mean, that's how, what we talk about the world. You know, the, the world is this big place with all these people in it. No, rather, in John... The world has this meaning. It's not just this big place, but it's this big place that is in constant opposition and rebellion against God. The world is not simply a place. It is a way of thinking and acting that dismisses God. In fact, that you could say, probably far more accurately, that hates God. It's a way of living that wants nothing to do with God except maybe in terms of what God can do for your benefit. And so God is an afterthought at best until something bad happens and then all of a sudden you go, okay, God, get me through this and I will do this for you as if you can do anything for God. The world 
is a way of thinking and acting that is purely self-centered, that wants to get its own way, do its own thing, focus on its own needs, regardless of what is right and wrong, and it by nature rebels against God as a normal part of how it does things. That is the life that Jesus is saying you need to hate. Your life in this world, in a world of self-centered darkness, pain, sorrow, and rebellion, That's what Jesus says. Hate that life. Hate that life without God. Hate that life in this world where you are constantly tempted to go the wrong way. That life in this world where doing the wrong thing often looks so much more fun and more comfortable and even at times more satisfying than doing what is right and pleasing God. That is the life you who follow Jesus are called to hate. Because Jesus in his life and his death is that seed that, that, that dies did that in obedience to God. Every single thing Jesus did, he did to be obedient. And thus, your pattern, your your, your pattern of following Jesus is of losing your life in its disobedience to God that you may gain real life. Jesus said something similar elsewhere as recorded by Mark. There he says, Uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his or her soul? And so the call here is for you to live differently. For you to deny yourself and devote yourself to Jesus. For living for God. And that means saying no to what the life of this world and its disobedience offers. And yes, to the real life that Jesus calls you to live. Oh yes, this often means your life will be difficult. It will mean suffering. Possibly it will mean physical suffering. Many of your brothers and sisters around this world know that. Many of them die because of it. Many of them are in prison because of it. But it will definitely mean this. It will mean suffering in terms of saying no to your natural tendency towards self-centeredness. It will say, it will be suffering in saying no to the things that so often tempt you. But notice how Jesus continues. He doesn't simply say, you know, this is, it's going to be tough. It is going to be tough. Don't, don't get me wrong. But he says this, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
First, there is that reminder. If you serve Jesus, that means you will follow him. You will follow the pattern that he lays down. That is, that you will be willing to lay down your life, to to hate your life in this world, that you might receive real life. Just as the Bible says in 1 John, by this you know that you are in him, whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says they they are in Jesus Christ, who says they trust him, is going to live like Jesus. Which is probably one of the most unnatural things for any of us to do. I know my natural tendency, and I'm guessing yours, is not to walk like Jesus walked, but to cling to our old way of living. And so Jesus says, If you trust me, you'll live like it. That's hard. It's scary. But notice, he says more. He says this, Where I am, there will my servant be also. He doesn't just simply say, It's hard. It will be. But he says, Look, where I am, you will be. In other words, I have went this route before you. I've prepared the way for you. I've marked the trail. I've walked the walk. And where I am, you know, you're going to be there too because I'll bring you there. The Bible says it this way, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He assures you here, where he is, you will also be. And with that, there is a further promise that those who live, you who live following Jesus, you who live denying yourself, taking up that cross and following him will be honored by the Father. In the end, after all of this, it will be worth it. You will have the most amazing, most wonderful, most glorious being there is. God turn to you and He will see your faltering, failing life, walking in faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and and he will say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, but I look and I say, how can you look at me and say that? But when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. These are what Jesus has done. Because he is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. That was the pattern he lays down for you. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, the Bible says, God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Said the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And it says those who humble themselves before the Lord will be lifted up. While following him, you follow in obedience to what he has shown in his word, the Bible. You follow denying yourself 
even when it's hard, even when it means suffering, and sometimes for some, even when it means death. But God exalts the humble, and Jesus said, if you follow him, he's with you in all that comes, and where he is, you will be also, and God will honor you. Because he went as the pioneer, as the founder. And more than that, we find that in his suffering and death, he's the one who empowers you to do this. In trusting in him, you, you, you can have those, those faltering steps that you make living as Jesus calls you to live in the word because of what he did. Listen to these words of Jesus. This is from our reading today as, as well. He says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world to be driven out. In Jesus' hour of glorification, in his death for his people, in their place, he says, Now is the judgment on this world in rebellion against God. Now this world will be shown for what it really is. But more than that, he says, now is the time when the prince of this world, of this world of rebellion and disobedience to God, that is the devil, will be driven out. What does that mean? We know from the rest of the New Testament that it, it, it can't mean that, that Satan is driven out of the world. Because the New Testament warns us repeatedly to be aware of the traps he puts before us. We're told that he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. So Jesus was not saying that, that the devil would be driven out of this world, or at least not at this point. There is a time when that will come. Instead, he's saying that it was a time... The hour has come for the devil and his influence in the lives of people who trust Jesus to be driven out. Augustine said it well. He says, Where is he that is the devil cast out from? From heaven and earth? From this created universe? No, he's cast out of the hearts of believers. Since the invader has been cast out, let the Redeemer dwell within, because the same who created was also the one who redeemed. The devil now assaults from without, but does not conquer the Redeemer who has taken possession within the believer. The devil assaults from without by throwing various temptations into the believer, but the person to whom God speaks within, who has the anointing of the Spirit, does not consent to these temptations. You look and you say, I, I, if you're like me, you look and you say, Jesus, what you're calling me to do is really hard. And if your life is like mine, you probably look and say, there are so many times I fail. Where do I get the strength? Do I just pull up my bootstraps and say, okay, I'm going to do better next time. And Jesus says, no, now it's the time. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be cast out. You want to know where your strength, where your ability for you to follow Jesus this way comes from. Do you want to know where you start to hate your life and its tendency toward wanting to go its own way in rebellion against God? Do you want to know where 
that change is empowered? It's empowered in this, in Jesus' defeat of the devil, in his death in your place, and his resurrection to life. And that means that is the thing you need to contemplate. That is the thing you need to have sink deep into who you are, what Jesus has done. So the call here is look to Jesus. Look to him as an example. Look to him as the seed that died to bring forth much fruit. And live that way. Hate your life in this world. And look to him as the one who can free you from the power of this world. The power of the devil and and his rebellious temptations. Where you can look and say, because of what he has done. Because he died in my place. I can say no. For some of you, that is a revelation. You look at temptation as if it's something that can, 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 can beat you every time. But it can't. The Bible's clear on that. In Jesus, you have a way out. And when you do fail in Jesus, you have a way to be forgiven and keep living the life that he calls you to. And so this says, realize it is only as the seed dies that the harvest comes. It's only as you die that fruit starts to show up in your life. It's what Jesus did in his suffering death. And it's the root, the pattern of life he calls you to follow. To die to yourself and live for him. And it is the way of life that he and only he can empower in you. When you look to him, when you trust him, when you rest in him, and when you, you, you look to the glory of the cross, to the amazing love of God, where the Son of God came and died in your place. May God give you and I the grace to see that more and more and to live it out that you can hate your life in this world and live the life of one who follows Jesus, Jesus that denies yourself and your tendency to self-centeredness all to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words. They call for us to live such a different life. Yet with it, they are words of hope, words of power, for they are the words of the gospel. Your hour came. And in your death, you died what we should have died. You suffered what we should have suffered. And in your resurrection, you brought life to all who trust in you. That that, that we have a life that is different, that isn't centered on ourselves, but centered on glorifying the Father that's centered on living for our great God and Savior, that's empowered by the very thing you did, casting out, casting out the prince of this world from our hearts and taking up residence there 
that we have a Redeemer who we can turn to every moment of every day when we are in need. May we be quick to turn to you. May we be people who contemplate what you have done in your suffering and death and resurrection and who eagerly look forward to the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. We ask that you would bless these words. Amen.